We're going to look at the book of Jonah, and we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4 today, this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Jonah chapter 4, and I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray. Jonah 4 verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it was withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be near to us today. That by your spirit you would go before us through your word. And that you would accomplish your purposes of bringing life to us. For we are vessels in need of filling. We are people who need life. And oftentimes, knowing how life is, that it can be so draining, so difficult. Um, we lose our sense of life and hope and peace. And so we pray this morning through your word, through Jesus, that you might restore us once again. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I, I have a bit of a, a man crush on an actor called Hugh Grant. I've always liked Hugh Grant movies. And uh, so recently I was flipping through uh, channels on the TV and a movie that I've seen before came on. It's a movie called About a Boy. And so I, I recorded it and came back a few days later and watched it. And Bo About a Boy is a novel by Nick Hornby. He's written several other novels. High Fidelity is one of them. It's a novel that's been made into a movie and later, even now, a TV show on NBC, which maybe you've seen. The movie tells the story about a guy, a single man. His name is Will Freeman. He is a wealthy man. Now, he's wealthy not because he's done anything to create this wealth, but because his father had written a song, a Christmas song, that continued to generate royalties every Christmas. 
And so every Christmas, Nick got a new wealth of checks because uh, of the continual, I said Nick, Will, uh, because of the continual playing of the song. Every Christmas, it was such a popular song. Well, Will's life is incomplete. He goes to all different lengths to try to meet women, to try to fill this incomplete void that he has in his life. And he goes so low as to pretend that he has a son. And he shows up at a single mom's support group as a single dad, all in the hopes of meeting somebody. Was that something? I don't <laughs> something pop? And so he meets the, uh, in, during this time he, he pretends like he has a son, he meets a woman, and this woman leads him to meet another family, another woman who has a son, and this son and him end up forming this relationship. The son's name is Marcus, and Marcus is a very awkward guy. He gets beat up at school. His mom is also a very difficult woman, a difficult woman to love. She has lots of different issues, lots of different problems. She's a micromanager of Marcus while at the same time struggling under the weight of depression and suicidal thoughts. And so as the story unfolds, uh, Will gets more and more embedded into this family's life. And Marcus gets more and more embedded into his. And the wrestling of the movie, the wrestling of the story, of the novel, of the TV show, is this idea of... As you grow to know someone, as you grow in your knowledge of who they are and what they're about, as you see all of their glories and all of their shames, will you still love them? That's the question for Will. As he engages in this life with Marcus, with Fiona, his mother, as he learns about the kind of people they are, as he wonders about his own life, that he doesn't really want to get involved in this. He doesn't really want these kind of problems that these people bring into his life. And so the question for him is, will he know and still love? Will he know them and continue to press into this family and love them? And the interesting thing about the movie is the converse is also true. Because in truth, the character that's the most depraved in the movie and in the book is Will. And the question for this family, for Marcus, for Fiona, is will they, the more that they know will, still press in to love him? The more we know, the more difficult it is to love. You know this. You know this because you have roommates. You know what it's like when you come home after study session to discover that your roommates have guests over playing Xbox, cracking back, you know, uh, uh, energy drinks till two or three in the morning when you have to get up for an exam the next day. You know if you live in an apartment or a house where you have to do dishes and you come back home and you see that your roommates have once again left dishes in the sink and haven't cleaned the bathroom in months, perhaps in my case when I was a college student, years. You know that the more that you know about your roommates, the more difficult it is to love them. This is true of our Jonah story. Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Jonah, the one on the run. The more that Jonah knows in this story about the Ninevites, the less he loves them. And interestingly, the more Jonah is will discover knows about God, the less he loves God. The Ninevites were a wicked people, a people who had carried off into exile the people of God. 
The people of God, those who worship God, those who follow God, and those who at different times in the story of God ran away from God to idol worship. These same people God took away from their land and brought them into the lands of Assyria to never come back to Israel again. This is who the Ninevites were. This is where they came from. They were a cruel and ruthless people. And so when Jonah finds out that he's supposed to go to them, he runs. Why does he run? Well, perhaps it's about the Ninevites. He knows the Ninevites. There's been many theories by many different commentators about why Jonah wants to run from the Ninevites, why he doesn't want to go and share this message of redemption with them, this message of possible judgment with them. Maybe it's personal loss that Jonah's experienced. Maybe his family was exiled or killed. But he definitely understands that there's been loss, loss to his people. And so to know them and to love them just don't make sense for Jonah. But we discover here in this text that he says why he ran was because he knew God would forgive these people. Jonah knows God. He grows to know God more and more and more and ends up loving God less. Even though God rescues Jonah, Jonah in the belly of the whale. In the belly of the whale, he writes this great, beautiful piece. If you read chapter 2 of repentance to God. He prays this prayer in the belly. He goes to those he he knows or thinks he knows. And he preaches a message. And the interesting thing in chapter 3 about this message is there's no gospel. He just tells the people of Nineveh, Nineveh that God will destroy your city. No message, just a story of destruction. And yet, surprisingly, what happens? The people hear this message and repent. And instead of this turning Jonah's heart, because he's surprised at God's mercy, surprised that people would repent, even at the announcement of such a message that you're just going to be destroyed, he doesn't change. His love doesn't grow. In fact, the more that he knows, the more embittered that he becomes. Not just towards the Ninevites, but towards God. And so we come to chapter 4 and we discover, the text we read this morning, that Jonah is sitting outside the city. He's watching and he's waiting for the city to be destroyed. The more he knows about the Ninevites, even after wandering through the town and preaching to them and seeing them repent, the less that he loves them. But God doesn't destroy the Ninevites. He relents. And this is what Jonah says, Yahweh to Yahweh, I knew that you would. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I knew it, God. I knew you would forgive this people. I knew that you would show mercy to them. Like a petulant child, he's pouting. I knew it. And now I see it in living color. And the more that he knows about Yahweh, about God, the less he loves. Jonah knew God's love. He knew God's call. He knew the Ninevites. And knowing all of that made him recoil in his love. Stephen Garber, who's an author, a teacher, in his book, Visions of Vocation, says the following. Always and everywhere. This is our challenge as human beings. Can we know and love the world? 
Can we know and love our roommates? Can we know and love our campuses at the same time? Knowing its glories and its shames, can we still choose to love what we know? And then Garber says, is there any task more difficult than that? Think it through for yourselves. From roommates to parents to siblings to friends, from neighborhoods to cities, from countries to cultures to continents. Once you begin to really know what a person and place is like, can you still love them? Can you still love it? It's the heartbeat behind all relationships, right? The question of if you're looking for a spouse, if you're looking for a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if you're somewhere on that journey and maybe you're not interested at all because you have too much going on, but that journey is all about knowing and still loving As you discover something about somebody, will you still love them? I remember sitting with my wife at the time, girlfriend at the time, and we were arguing about something early on in our relationship. We'd been dating a few months while I was a student at NMSU, and she was too. And the point that I brought up in arguing with her was that she never argued back towards me. Right? Like, what are you thinking, dude? Like, you had a girlfriend to be wife that never fought with you? What a gift. So we had this big old fight. But the heartbeat behind the argument, whether I was crazy or not, was knowing what I know about her. Will I still love her? And that continues on throughout our relationship. That continues on even after we say our vows. Even in today, as I discover all the things that... Age brings into the question, as children have brought into the question, as calling has brought into the question, will I know and still love? It is the question of our lives. And so thinking about your campuses, thinking about the things on your campus, what's going on on your campus? I went and looked at each of your school newspapers. Now, to begin with, I'll say that I went to NMSU's Roundup website. It's being updated. So the last post was in May, um, which I found funny. Um, they have updated their Facebook page, but they're redoing their website. It's already October, and they haven't got their website done. That's so New Mexican, by the way. Will we know and still love New Mexicans because of that? But what I saw was, you know, the most recent uh, uh, thing from uh, the Roundup was an article on the front page, abortion, all for abortion or not. Gender neutral bathrooms, same sex marriage, Cinco de Drinco. (laughs) Will we still know, will we know and still love? With issues like that, that dominate our campus, will we still, will we know that? Will we press into that and still love that? Air Force Academy, whiteboards. Now the Air Force newspaper was very interesting. It was, there was not a lot of negative press. Um, But what she found is, as I looked at other newspapers that wrote about the Air Force Academy, but, you know, the big controversy that that, that was there last spring over whiteboards and tolerance, and what does it look like to tolerate someone writing a verse on a whiteboard on campus or a prayer from the Quran and the controversy related to that, or whether saying vows about being um, 
about God as an Air Force Academy student. What was really interesting about the Air Force is their new media and Air Force available for download. I'm reading directly from the website. The pamphlet created by the Air Force Public Affairs Agency Emerging Technology Division should be used as an instructional guide. It is not to be construed as an official guidance endorsement of products or sites listed, nor is it policy. It was developed for Air Force public affair professionals who offer guidance and counsel on anything communication related. It's called PAG, Public Affairs Guidance. Please feel free to download and consult the book to learn more about social media and how it's being used as a new communication tool. I thought that was really kind of funny. Um, that that had to be kind of outlined and that, that it's kind of still thought of as being a new, new tool to the Air Force. <laughs> as we press in our campuses, can we know and still love? When there's issues that happen that strike at our values, that strike at our hearts, that are things that just relate to all different sort of, uh, sort of things, can we still love our campuses? The best one was CSU. I went to Ram Talk. Why do people, mainly freshmen, sorry, feel the need to pack up with 10 minutes left of class when there's still a discussion going on? Hashtag, I'm going to freak out and kill them. CSU, where there are haves and have-nots. Why are people upset about cameras in the rec room? Rush week is the zombie apocalypse of campus. Mobs of brain-sucking Greek life. This is a good one. If pedestrians can't refrain from walking in the bike lane, the least they can do is walk with a purpose. Hashtag hurry up. Hashtag pick a direction. If you so much as breathe too loudly in the study center, everyone tries to murder you with their eyes. Oh, let's see. What else should I say here? Ah, look at all the little Rammies attending orientation. They even have little hopeful grins. How naive. That is getting to the heart. All of those things. All of those things deal with knowledge. The accumulation of knowledge of a place. Even the one that sarcastically comments about the idealism of a freshman student who walks on campus. Because everyone else knows, as they've been on campus, that they, the more that they know about this campus and the people that inhabit it, the less it's worthy of love. The less it's worthy of that ideal. We all walk on to our majors for the first time, and we go into that classroom and we think, man, we're going to change the world. And then we show up in the class day after day after day, and we interact with our students and our professors, and pretty soon we grow cynical, stoics. Will we know and still love? In a hookup culture, in a place where people must hide behind alcohol and every other thing in order to not reveal their identity, not to reveal who they are, to keep it kind of mysterious. So they're going to hook up in a weird way, destroying the mysteriousness about a relationship, and think that in doing so, they will protect themselves from being known. Can we know and still love? 
I had a conversation recently about from a, with a soccer mom in Albuquerque, and she talked about our city. She talked about her husband that she loves and her kids who she loves and her family who she loves. And she says, knowing them, I can love them. And then she looks towards the city and she says, but this city, this city I can't love. And just recently, as she told me that story, I remembered why my city's hard to love. I was driving to Costco with my wife. We're waiting in a stoplight. There's a green arrow. The car in front of me is not going. And so I touched the horn. My kids love that, by the way. They love when I honk at somebody. My daughter gets all excited. Honk at them, Dad. Honk at them. <laughs> and so we're not going. There's a green arrow. I don't want to be sitting here for another light. So I honk the horn. And what burgueños do when you, get a horn, when you get a horn honked at you is you stick a symbol outside your window. And that's what this gal and her boyfriend did out of both windows. <laughs> And I'm just like, hot. by this time I'm, I'm hot. I'm like, I'm just asking you to go. It's a pretty simple request. And so normally I do the, you know, the drive-by. Have you ever done the drive-by? Like, you know you're mad, you're steaming about the driver in front of you, so you do this little drive-by, and when you drive by, you like <laughs> self-righteous angst, like looking out the window at him. So I start to do that, and then I'm like, no, Holy Spirit wins out. I'm not going to do that. That lasts about two seconds until they pulled into the Walmart parking lot. And as they're pulling in, slam on their brakes, look out and start yelling out their window. So I slam on my brakes and I go, start yelling back. Can we know that and still love that? That's the question. It's the question for you in every relationship that you have. Every relationship that you live out, can you know and still love? From your parents to your siblings, to your roommates, to your neighbors, knowing what you know, can you still love them? And our question, knowing what you know, will you still love, is a question for Jonah as well. If we know someone well, if we spend time with them, if we enter into their worlds, their suffering, their shame, it's hard to look at. It's almost like that bad performance that you get, that you go to some recital and you're sitting there and when they hit the wrong note or sing the wrong key or fall down on stage, you look and you cringe. You feel the shame, the embarrassment that they feel. You look away. That's how it is knowing someone. When you really know someone, you enter into that quite regularly. Knowing that shame, can we still move in and love? Stephen Garber, who I told you about, wrote this book, Visions of Vocation. And in it, he talks, tells a story about dealing with a, a friend that had been murdered. He had a very close friend that was murdered in his life. And he didn't want to look into his own life and into his faith and even at God because of this murder. He didn't want to ask hard questions. He didn't want to deal with his doubts and his suffering. He was asking the question, knowing what he knows about God, can he still love God? Here's what he said. What I wasn't sure was about was God. Those were dark days for me as it seemed that I had now seen enough to know that what I had believed about faith and hope and love was not sustainable. This was one of too many stories of horrible sorrow. How could I still be true in the face of a friend being stabbed to death? And I began to wonder, 
Is there something that is more true than what I have believed? Is there an account of the universe that makes more sense of the griefs like this? As he's asking those questions, he reads Harper's Magazine. And in that Harper's, a long time ago, there was an interview between two people, Neil Postman and a, uh, a philosopher and a lady with the last name of Paglia. The question was regarding television in this article. The question that was being asked was, is it a social good or not? Postman was critical of all television. Paglia was not. And so they had this dinner conversation that Harper's Magazine recorded. And at the end of dinner, Postman made an observation that summed up his criticism of TV. How is it possible to watch the evening news? Now listen to this. And Because our world is a thousand times faster than this world. How is it possible to watch the evening news in five minutes hear about a plane crash in India, an earthquake in Chile, a rape in Central Park, that the Mets beat the Cardinals, and finally an ad for hemorrhoids medicine? And somehow take it all in. He argued that as human beings we cannot do so and we must choose to step back, unable to respond to the torrent of information, poignant and horrific, playful and commercial. As it is, Paglia, who was a Buddhist, then responds to this criticism. And she says, but Neil, that's the way the world is. Buddha smiles at it all. And Garber responds, when I heard these words, I recoiled, knowing that that was not an adequate response to my friend's murder, to any degree of suffering or shame. Knowing produces something in us. How can we take it and know it and love it? That's the question of our day. It's the question of our lives. Knowing produces this in our heart. And so we only have choices like this. We could either become, when we take all this in, when we're reading our Twitter feed, And everything that's on there is all kinds of information. And some of it tragic, and some of it good, and some of it prayer requests, and some of it this. And as you take all of that in, the responses are one of the following. You become a stoic. Like the Buddha that Paglia describes. You stay distant. You take no responsibility for the world. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing I can do about it anyway. I mean, that suffering's happening way over here on the other side of the world. The tragic thing that just happened, the the cyclone that's going on right now in Japan. I can't do anything about this. So you remove yourself from the world. You remove yourself from your emotions. You suppress them so you don't feel. Second thing you can do is become a cynic. Turn a critical eye at the world. Make fun of it with the thought that things will never get better. So I can't do anything anyway. It's just getting worse. That's who Will was, Will Freeman from About a Boy. He was a cynic about his world. Or maybe you're an Epicurean. You take a drink, you eat some food, and you numb your pain, and you get through life by partying hard. All of this is incapable of handling the knowledge that we gain by being in the world. And all of it's incapable of allowing us to love it. Jonah is a cynic. He's cynical about God. He's been scarred from life, perhaps because of the Ninevites themselves. Perhaps because he's lost family and friends in the exile. Jonah's cynical about God. He goes to Nineveh to preach judgment. And yet, yet, and even then the people believe. 
Jonah's cynicism in knowing the Ninevites is now transferred to God. He knows God and he says, I knew that you would do this. And what's ironic about the story is this character that this caricature here put before you of Jonah and the plants. What does Jonah care about? What does he know and care about? He, can't, he knows himself and he cares about himself. And so he loves that the plant gives him shade. And then he mourns that the plant, when it's shriveled up by the heat of the day, and it's no longer there to give him shade. And yet you have this people that he's waiting for it, these people to be destroyed. And he sits out the city almost like eating popcorn, excited about what God might do, that he might destroy this people. It's an ironic twist that the author's trying to help us see. Jonah's cynical. So cynical. And the more Jonah knows, the less that he loves. And so the story of Jonah is about Jonah or is it about God? It's a story about God. You see, the interesting thing about Jonah is it shows God is the one, the more that God knows. Now, I say this knowing that God knows all. He's not gaining knowledge. He knows all. And yet God, knowing Jonah, knowing first Nineveh, Think about this, Nineveh, the, the people that have taken God's people into exile. It's shocking, it's meant to be shocking to us that this God would have compassion on, of all people, the Ninevites. The ones who have ransacked, the ones who have created violence. How could God have compassion on even them? It should shock us as we read it. God, knowing Nineveh, loves them. Brings them to repentance. Ask the question, should I not pity, have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also so much cattle. In their not knowing, God's knowing means rescue, redemption, salvation. The more that he knows, the more that he loves. And then turn your attention to Jonah. We don't know if Jonah repeats any of this. We don't know what happens to Jonah. We don't know if he repents of his sin. The story ends in verse 10, which we read, with the question before Jonah, should not God have compassion on these? Should God not know and love these? God presses in. He brings a whale to preserve Jonah. It produces repentance. Even in the pout and the plant, God is caring for Jonah by taking the plant away, sending the hot wind and sun to remind him of his neediness, leading to the question, shall I not love the great city? God is unlike the Buddha, smiling at it all as a stoic or a cynic or an epicurean, saying, let it all burn. He acts, he knows, he does. He puts on suffering. B.B. Warfield says the emotional life of our Lord, he argues, that the Gospels were written into a Stoic culture so that the incarnation must be seen as an alternative account of the universe. In particular, he maintains that the incarnation is a counter-argument to the Stoicism of the day. People who did not want to press in in love based on what they know, they wanted to suppress their emotions, not be engaged into that Place God sends His Son to fully engage, to fully know, to fully love. God doesn't stand back. He enters in. In John 11, the story of Jesus as He enters Bethany, He hears wails in the village. 
He hears the wails of his friends at the death of his friend Lazarus. And Jesus is present. In fact, the words, Jesus wept, he groaned severely in spirit, are the same words a Greek poet would use to describe a war horse ready to enter into battle, ready to enter into the conflict as a warrior himself. That Jesus' responded like this matters to us immensely. Because there's moments in life where we can do nothing else than cry out against the wrongs of the world. It's just not the way that it's supposed to be. It's outrageous. Isn't it outrageous that this is the way our world is? Isn't it outrageous that our campuses are the way that they are? Isn't it outrageous that this is the things that we value, that the things that our campus values? Isn't it outrageous that the injustice? Isn't it outrageous that things are covered up, whether for athletes or people being uh, raped and pillaged on a campus? It's outrageous. And Jesus groans severely. And readies himself to enter the fray. You see, the Lord knows. He knows our hearts. He knows that our hearts are sick and deceitful. He knows that we seek exaltation from men. That we seek to be praised by others. He knows this. He knows this and he still moves in to help us. He knows what will happen in Jerusalem, and yet he still enters into Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. He wishes that these people in Jerusalem will be gathered, known, and cared for. He knows the crowds, that they will shout, crucify him, crucify him. He knows what they'll do to them, and yet he still goes. He still moves in. He still acts. This is the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus' church. Knowing what we know and still loving. Think on these things. God, knowing what he knows and still loves. The Lord knows our frame. And so this morning, that's my one challenge to you. Is that you will press in and know this love. How are you going to know and still love? It's only by knowing that there is a love that presses in and still knowing all about you still loves you. Even as we are. Follow the trail of your life. The thoughts of your mind. The ways that I myself, the things I think about. I want praise. I get angry at drivers. I, get, want, to, I want to have revenge. And yet God knows this and still loves me. C.S. Lewis, the writer, author, knew suffering. He knew something about life. He knew something about the complexities of life and the difficulties of life. He wrote two books on the nature of pain and sorrow. And the outrageousness of pain and sorrow in this life. The Problem of Pain was one of those books. It's an apologetic on the nature of suffering. And then a Grief Observed which was written as he watched his wife die of cancer. There are two different readings on the same human heart trying to understand what we do with the wounds of the world, what we do when we know the world. He knew pain, and he knew that he was called in the midst of pain to love the world in the midst of it. You see, the interesting thing about Lewis, the the death that shaped his life the most was the loss of his mother. His mother died when he was very young. He didn't know her very well. She was sick his whole life. Perhaps his best works about suffering and knowing and loving are found in the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis, who also lost his mother, 
we see his story kind of played out in the magician's nephew, in the story of Diggory. Diggory enters Narnia on the day of its creation. He has mixed motivations, which is the way it is for all of us. On the one hand, it is for his friend Polly's sake that he takes up the adventure that leads him into Narnia. Sure that she is in distress and wanting to help her, knowing what he knows and still choosing to love. But on the other, it is because of his mother's sickness, Diggory's, and his own grief that he's willing to do anything for anyone that might make her better. Because Diggory knows suffering, because Diggory knows loss, he wants to help those who suffer loss. And so he moves in to Narnia. Aslan, the lion who's the king of the new world in Narnia, draws Diggory into a conversation. In his heart, Diggory begins to imagine that he can make a deal with Aslan. I will do this for him if he does this for me. But the closer that Diggory gets to the great lion, the more sure he is that no deal can be struck with him. It is then that he looks up at the lion. And he sees tears streaming down the lion's tawny face. And Lewis writes this. That Diggory was then sure that the lion cared more about my mother than I did myself. And knowing that to be true, Diggory opened his heart to the calling that became his. As Aslan had worked for him to do in addressing the heartaches of that very new world. The tears, my friends of God, are complex. They must be tears of sympathy, even empathy. And so as Aslan weeps for Diggory's mother, and as Jesus weeps for his friends at the death of their brother, but sometimes there are also tears of anger at the unnaturalness of death, the distortion of death, at the skewing of human hopes, as Jesus groans severely in his spirit at the death of Lazarus. And this is the beginning of of knowing that ends in loving. This is the hope for us this morning. As each of us look into the face of Jesus, we see tears on his face that we would know that he cares more about us than we do. That we would know that he cares more about our campuses than we do. That we would know that he cares more about our roommates than we do. That he would know that we, he cares more about our moms or our dads or our brothers or our friends than we could ever care about. He knows and he cares. He's there and he loves. And because he does, it is our hope, our motivation, our power, just like it is for Diggory, that he would know and still move in to love. Put your hopes in the knowing of Jesus and the loving of Jesus. He knows and he still loves you. Let's pray. Father, we pray for um, our hearts. We're so like Jonah We learn things about people, we learn things about ourselves, and we recoil. We don't want none of it. We grow cynical and stoic and stoics. We run to things to fill and numb us. Because knowledge is too hard. 
We pray this morning that you'd help us to look to Jesus as we feel those things, as we want to recoil, as we want to withdraw, as even now we might want to withdraw to our rooms or cabins or to get away, that we would press in, that we would be known, that we would risk, that we would trust that all that you know about us and all the ways that you love us is true and good. That we would see the tears on your face, knowing that you care more about anything else, more than we could care about anything else. We pray all these things in the name of Christ Jesus.